Okay, so with any luck, uh, the, uh, the the secret magics of the Horga will not delete this episode, uh, this conversation about Midsommar. Uh, Is the Horga for- Scientology? That's what I want to know. Ooh, now that's interesting. I, I, for one, think the sort of surreal nature of uh, talking about this movie that we just talked about a week ago will uh, will sort of lend itself to the vibe of Midsommar really effectively. Well, you know, I mean, they did require for that dissertation that you were going to delete all names and all that information, and we were we were being real specific. So that's maybe true. That's what it was. Maybe we spoke too much about the uh, the community to the public. Yeah. You know, we said some controversial things on that lost episode. Uh, oh, it was wild. Uh-huh. Connections were made between fictional cults and real-world uh, religious movements, you know. We learned uh, our lesson. Those things did indeed occur. And you know what? They might still occur uh, today. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Because <laughs> Dalton doesn't learn lessons. No, God, no. If we learn anything, is that Dalton learns nothing. Yes. Well, I, I have learned to be uh, more measured in my opinion, and uh, you know, willing to uh, reevaluate it from time to time. I don't, I, I don't think Equilibrium is still a really good movie, you know, uh, which is a take Welcome. I had years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I the- know, Dustin. I'm sure you're so pleased by that information. Oh my gosh! Yes, but- I've been, I've been holding resentment on that one for nearly a decade. But the faculty still slaps. Yeah, the faculty still uh, well, is a banger. Absolutely, the, fa- the faculty's problems were ideological, not in terms of filmmaking or fun. So I will, I will kind of soften my strong stance from there. That's what ten years will do to a man. <laughs> I will say, uh, no equilibrium. Good chance, no John Wick, and I, I think that's a, a case that you know could be made. Uh, okay, okay. I'm but, not going to make it right now. Well, I'm just saying somebody could. <laughs> you better hit Matt Singer with that hot take. Put that on his his list of influential movies of the 21st century. Speaking of influential movies, uh, I think we're talking about one that's that today, right? Yes. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film space course. This week's film is last week's film. It is Midsummer Take Two. If you hadn't guessed it from our kicky banter uh, that began the show. So we'll be talking about Ari Aster's Midsummer, Florence Pugh's excellent performance, and others, and all kinds of good things about that. I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I think I'm still Dalton, but uh, I don't know. Some Swedish lady hand me some uh, weird tea before we sat down to record. So, are you in a bear suit? Oh God! You know what I am. Oh. It's going to be a bad night, buddy. Yeah, oh, it's going to go really, really badly. But good news is they could close your eyes for you if you play your cards right. Well, you know that sounds nice. That's a, that's at least uh, relaxing. Yeah, then it just gets warm, real. I like warm, warm. Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, you All wet right. yourself. Well, just in case you're wondering about that, that might be a spoiler, and we're not going to say those things at the first part of the show. The way it works is this. We do a synopsis, which is spoiler-free. We do quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, and then we move into a a little game called Expand the Syllabus, which might involve slight spoilers of the film, but usually it involves more or less spoilers of films around the film. And then finally we get on to business. There is a bit of kicky music that lets you know that that has happened. And that's when all spoiler bets are off because this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that does mean we got to tell you what happened. And so we'll get to that, but we will preserve your ears with this relatively new film uh, for that. Uh, As you will listen and I think perhaps make a determination as to whether or not you want to see uh, the movie uh, Midsommar, which I think is part of a judgment that one might have to make. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and do those quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Do you like this movie? And generally, do you think people ought to see it and when and why and all that kind of good stuff? I go to you first, Dalton. What do you say? Uh, well, you know, as Dustin has said, this uh, the conceit of everything that we do here is that we talk about the films you wouldn't discuss in a film studies course. Uh, this feels like a cheat, but, you know, we're doing a, a marathon about uh, 
uh, we're doing a marathon this month, uh, featured on cult movies. And typically, when we do marathons, you know, we're we're a little lax on the the, the whole not going to talk about film studies rule. Uh, I feel pretty confident this is a movie that's going to you know it's going to have a life uh, within academia, and not just because it features uh, academics you know being murdered. Uh, I don't feel like that's a spoiler for Midsummer. Um, all that to say, yeah, I think this movie's a masterpiece, and I I, I try not to throw that word uh, around a lot because I don't know that's a word people throw around a lot in general. And I definitely think within film discourse, it's, it's one that we tend to bandy about quite a bit. Um, but the more I, I sit on this film and, and really like, even between when we talked about it last week and now, uh, the more it really just, it just lives in my brain rent free. And I wish it didn't. Uh, <laughs> I wish I hadn't felt compelled to, uh, pay a 24 for the privilege of watching the director's cut. Uh, you know, I, I wish I would have been uh, content <laughs> to just uh, stream the, the theatrical, uh, but I like this movie enough that I, I really, you know, embraced that completionism. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I needed to go there. I needed to know all of the uh, the extra textual bits. I need to have all the context and character moments put back in. Uh, and I'm happier for it. I, you know, I think the theatrical cut uh, definitely works better overall. But uh, the things that work so well about this film, which are just really sort of the creative texture and the characterization of, of really everyone, even some of the most minor characters have kind of interesting characterization. Uh, all of that stuff uh, that I think makes the film so effective is in the director's cut even more so. Um, but, you know, I, I would be uh, lying if I said this film wasn't a little overindulgent. You know, I, I think it probably teeters on the edge of far too long. And as we'll definitely get into, this is not a movie for everybody by any stretch of the imagination, not just because of its length uh, and not just because it's spooky. I just, you know, the subject matter uh, that it uses to tell a horror story is uh, pretty fraught, uh, both in terms of just what you see as an audience member and also, you know, some of the ideas it might kind of accidentally present. Uh, again, you know, it's a fictional film, but it, it definitely deals with real world issues. And we'll talk about those more um, as particularly, you know, the way this film handles the family tragedy, the way it, it deals with, uh, you know, mental illness. Uh, obviously, Ari Aster's previous film, Hereditary, uh, tackles those issues as well. Uh, and I think that's his strength, right, is finding the horror within, you know, family dynamics, within social interaction, um, really finding the the everyday regular interactions people have and turning everything up, all, the volume up on everything all the way. Um that's a really effective way to tell a horror story, but it can also be a, a deeply emotionally troubling uh, horror story to sit through. Right. Uh, and I think the film's effectiveness, you know, is hard to deny, but that can make it a, not an easy film to, to recommend, I guess, but uh, all of that to qualify uh, and cover my ass to say on saying, I, I do think it's masterpiece. I think like at a, you know, sort of a, Cinema as experience, right? Like uh, the magic trick of movie making. I just, I think it absolutely does everything it wants to do. And it, it does so very successfully. And whether or not you like those things is totally arbitrary and subjective. And, you know, uh, I, nobody can remove their personal experience uh, from the, the way in which they internalize or digest a, a piece of media or a piece of art. Um, so, you know, certain aspects of this movie might be too troubling. Certain aspects of this movie might uh, take you to a place that you don't want to go. Uh, certain aspects of this movie might also be very liberatory, right? It might be very cathartic to, to sit through. Um, there just aren't very many uh, psychedelic full core, dark comedy breakup movies though. And uh, I, you know, I'm glad that there is one at least. And I'm glad that it's Midsummer. I think uh, from production to costuming uh, to 
soundtrack, like all of all of these, you know, sort of craft elements that don't always get talked about in every film, uh, they all fit fit together so perfectly in Midsummer and really create a, a cohesive picture of uh, of Danny and her her dumb friends and her potential uh, new friends. Uh, I, I love the movie and uh, will not belabor the point because I know we'll get into it more later. Uh, I, I will just go ahead and tack on. Uh, Boy, what a performance from from Florence Pugh and, and really from everyone. Uh, on our you know lost conversation about this, uh, Arthur mentioned having some issues with Jack Rayner's performance, and I, I'm wondering if you, we want to talk about that more tonight. I do agree with that to some extent. I think uh, you know that character Christian is deeply unlikable for a lot of reasons, and I, I think the film needs him to be. Um, and I think Jack Rayner equips himself fairly well, but there definitely is a, a certain amount of like. I'm not sure how to quite phrase this because I don't. I think dudes like Christian are very real, and I've met some of them and uh, have uh, even dabbled myself in some of that uh, shittiness at certain points in my life. Uh, so I'm, I'm not saying that that is an unrealistically drawn character, but there is something about that performance that doesn't totally resonate as true. Uh, maybe Jack Rayner's just a great, lovable dude, and it's not fun for him to go there. Maybe uh, the the accent work is uh, stopping him from giving a you know a totally authentic performance. I, I don't know, but uh, I definitely thought about that more since uh, we, we first talked about this movie. And I, I, the more I think about it, the more I do start to uh, think Arthur might be onto something here. Um, Anyway, overall, I, I do love the film, and uh, I love it so much, I'm really not even that bummed we had to uh, find time to talk about it a second time. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that. Um, I stopped listening at Masterpiece. Dol- or Arthur, what do you think? Uh, Masterpiece <laughs> or not on Midsummer? <laughs> I, I really am going the opposite direction of Dalton. We were kind of feeling it last time we talked about this movie, and today I just think about how much this film has not resonated with me, and I, I don't know. It's just growing cold on me. I, I, I won't deny its craft. I, I, I do think it is incredibly constructed at, at every level. Uh, cinematography, costuming, production design, lighting, uh, cinematography, editing. I, I think all those things work incredibly well. Um, I, I, uh, production design, and especially the, the, the way these sets are built, that yellow temple building is so incredible against that, that backdrop of that lake and that forest. Um, I love the way it looks. I love the way the camera's being moved. Uh, the, the way in which uh, Aster manages to use very traditional cinematic language uh, to tell a, what is, you know, kind of known and has a reputation of being this, you know, quote unquote art house horror film uh, while still using very traditional techniques. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, if not leaning a little more new Hollywood esque in its, in its styling. Um, I, I think there's something there. Uh, I, I do. And, you know, don't want to really get into this, but I, I just had a thought. Uh, anyway, maybe come back to that. I, I, I think this movie though is incredibly well constructed. I, I, I do. And, you know, Florence Pugh is a knockout. Um, but that's really where it ends for me. I just, I don't know what it is about this movie. If it's, I'm just not connecting with it or it's just not landing with me. Uh, I, I think, um, I, you know, I don't complain watching it and I would watch it again, but it, it just doesn't resonate and it just doesn't hit me. And that kind of, you know, personal connection that I think really can, you know, subjectively set a movie apart. And I think the way it's landing with Dalton, right, uh, the, the way it's connected with him and the way he's, you know, able to see something in it, I, I think is what denotes it, you know, its status, you know, is a quote unquote masterpiece for him. But for me, I, I just don't get, you know, th- those same 
connections. And so for me, it's, it's just not working. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I, I don't want to say thumbs down, you know, but I, I'm just kind of left cold on this one. Uh, and I think that's where I'm at kind of wrestling in it in a way I wasn't anticipating, you know, a week later. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, I'm going to say in review, I don't know. I think I kind of agree with Arthur or not Arthur Dalton. Sorry. Wrong. I don't agree with Arthur. I disagree. I think it's a very, very well-made film and uh, is uh, doing everything it's supposed to be doing the way it's supposed to do it uh, and uh, achieving that. end, And it has a certain singularity. And for me, it does sort of stick. Um, but it is also a really, really heavy film. And uh, I, I don't think I can address a review of the movie, a movie like this without simply saying it is a, a really, really heavy film. And so as we need to say at this point, from this point forward in the show, trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of terrible, terrible things uh, that might happen within family dynamics and relational dynamics. And uh, so just be aware uh, that that is a, a religious trauma on top of all of that, I suppose, although that might apply more for our next episode. But that all being said, um, uh, you know yourself and just simply know that. Uh, and so if you're considering watching this movie, but you've heard some things, uh, where are you in terms of your own just sort of, you know, centeredness uh, with your emotional life in the world because it, it could be a very, very upsetting movie. Um, I saw the movie with the, after a very fresh trauma and it was not a good idea and it was really tough for me. But that movie also has remained with me and despite my unpleasant first experience with this film in theaters, I still find it to be really, really compelling and really, really engrossing. So those are my thoughts and our thoughts on the film, the film, the film Midsummer. Words are hard sometimes. But that all being said, I believe now it's time to expand the syllabus. Arthur, what is that? Expanding the syllabus is a thought exercise wherein we develop a class syllabus uh, regarding, uh, based around the, the movie of the week that we have watched. In this instance, it is Midsummer. Very good, very good. That is exactly what it is. Dalton, what does your syllabus look like, buddy? <clears throat> well, I'm going to stick to, uh, you know, what I had planned on uh, the first time we discussed this film. I, I do think that this movie is uh, dense enough that you really could uh, do a class just on it, or at the very least, primarily centered on it as, you know, the only film text. Um, I, I do think the class would actually probably uh, skew more towards the, uh, you know, the social sciences uh, than, uh, you know, a humanities class. I don't necessarily know that we're, this is going to be like a, a media criticism um, type look at this film. I, I do think you could take this film and all of the different topics that it wants to address and tries to address. Uh, and I think you could really take each one of those issues and kind of build it out and talk about real world parallels, right? I, I think you can look at the, you know, the group dance and the drug use, uh, the long hours, the, the communal meals. I think you can look at all of those things that uh, the Harga um, make part of the, the ritual and, and their community. And I think you can look at how that uh, manifests both within mainstream religions, uh, new religious movements, uh, high control groups. I'm going to try to use the the word cult less this marathon than I did on the, the first episode, because I think um, what we consider a cult uh, really does have a, a lot to do with, you know, some moral relativism type stuff uh, and some sort of perspective things. So I, I think we, we definitely need to make some distinctions uh, and a class doing, you know, on midsummer would have to do that. Right. So obviously you've got, uh, 
new religious movement just being a uh, a religion without thousands of years of you know theological history uh, or baggage, right? Uh, a high control group doesn't necessarily have to be a, a spiritual or religious community, uh, but it does often share a lot of features of a you know very strict. Um, orthodox religion, right? A high control group could be anything from Nixium uh, to Scientology to, uh, you know, um, the Branch Davidians and so on and so forth, right? Uh, All of these things are things that you could call cults, uh, but you could also, uh, you know, call a lot of things you wouldn't call cults high control groups. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and choose not to to list anything uh, specific at this point. But, you know, if you think about uh, uh, certain orthodox and... um, well, what's a fundamentalist religious movements, uh, both in this country and, and uh, throughout the world, uh, I think you can find a, a lot of uh, real world uh, parallels, not necessarily to, to the, the Ho- Hogar, not Hogar. That's the kid from uh, <laughs> Iron Giant. Um, at any rate, I'm not going to belabor trying to pronounce uh, uh, that with the, the right Swedish inflection. Uh, but but I, I think when we, we look at Midsommar, we can really see a lot of interesting connections. And again, I think other than looking at those, uh, the sorts of, you know, religious uh, formations, uh, we can also look at the, the way in which emotional uh, and relational uh, interpersonal abuse uh, is displayed in this film, right? Not only the ways in which, uh, you know, Christian gaslights Danny, uh, but also uh, how Danny tries to cope with uh, having a, a sibling with a you know very serious uh, uh, mental health disorder, we can also talk about the way the film chooses to engage with mental illness, right? Uh, and I think we would probably at that point maybe need to talk about Hereditary a little bit uh, because I think uh, the two films definitely present an interesting picture uh, of Ari Aster as you know not just a you know, director, but really just somebody who wants to tell stories about. Uh, real-world issues through the, the lens of genre storytelling. Um, because I, I think, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we get into uh, you know our, our analysis portion of, of the show this evening, um, we're, we're definitely going to have to talk about um, how Ari Aster chooses to tackle those issues. And uh, we're going to need to problematize it a little bit. And I think any class uh, worth its salt talking about Midsommar, uh, Midsommar would, would have to get into uh, the choices that are made uh, as far as when that, you know, we're in the spoiler territory now. This film opens with a a family murder or a, a murder suicide um, committed by uh, Danny's uh, sister, who is uh, within the text of the film diagnosed with bipolar disorder, uh, which you know I, I don't love. You know, I've got people in my life uh, who have bipolar disorder that I, I love very much, and uh, don't necessarily uh, like it when people with uh, you know uh, mental illness are, are uh, depicted as perpetrators of violence. You know, we don't need to get into the stats, but if you've uh, um, bothered to look into this kind of stuff at all ever in your life, listener, uh, you know that uh, people who experience mental illness are far more likely uh, to experience uh, violence at the hands of others than do violence to others. Uh, so we definitely got to talk about that stuff. Um, but I, I really do think, uh, you know, talking about relational dynamics, talking about in-groups and out-groups, uh, you know, we, we can look at, you know, I've, I've listed these other uh, religious movements, you know, both new and old, uh, talked about high control groups a little bit. Uh, again, I, I kind of breeze past that definition, but other than to say things that are high control groups, but again, a high control group is exactly what it sounds like on the 10, a group that dictates a lot about your comings and goings, your daily activities. Um, and I think we can kind of talk about within this film, there definitely is a certain American anxiety about the collective going on in Midsummer, right? And I, I don't necessarily think that, uh, um, 
you know, individualism and collectivism are mutually exclusive, but I think we can definitely talk about when those ideas are mutually exclusive, uh, when they have to be, when they are, uh, don't have to be. Um, again, I, I think there is a lot of meat on this movie's bones and it's not, I'm not just saying that cause I like it a whole lot. Uh, I, I just think even if, uh, you don't think all of these things land and I, I think there are definitely uh, valid readings of this film that, uh, or, you know, don't love it. You know, I, I think you can definitely take a look at this movie and say, this doesn't work for me. Um, but I think you you have to at least acknowledge the things that it wants to wrestle with, the things that it wants to tackle. Uh, and I think those things are all very interesting and, and very useful as far as uh, looking at how we relate to each other, both in an interpersonal way uh, and as members of communities, both, you know, um, all in one community and, you know, separate communities trying to interact with one another. Um, I mean, I've mostly been thinking about uh, Florence Pugh's character, Danny, uh, and talking about all this, but we can, of course, talk about uh, Josh as, a, as the, you know, the, the most anthropologically minded character on the vacation, uh, William Jackson Harper's character, uh, who is, you know, so interested in these people's uh, beliefs that uh, he does not see the, uh, the looming danger uh, because he, he is trying to approach it with a, you know, a, you know, objective academic lens that, that is trying to frame these people's practices as, you know, in, informed by their circumstances, right? We can talk about Will, the bumbling fool, <laughs> doesn't know not to pee on people's stuff, uh, right? There, every character, I think, uh, at least within the, you know, the sort of main cast with speaking lines, offers us something uh, in, in terms of how we as people, you know, experience communities, uh, both communities that want us to be part of them and communities that actively uh, don't want us around them to the extent they might murder us. Um, so again, uh, that's the class. It is a little vague. I, I, I agree with you um, if you're thinking that, uh, but you know, I don't always have uh, the time to pull the, the homework on articles we, we should read to, to discuss this, but of course we would have to look at all of the, you know, major uh, faux pas and snafus with, uh, to, and that's putting it mildly um, with, you know, different, um, cults, uh, new religious movements, high control groups throughout the you know 20th century, early 21st century. I think there is a boy a lot there. In fact, we could probably go back to the 19th century and look at some some different groups and, and uh, the ways in which they've uh, had impacts in the in the the years moving forward. Um, so that that's the class. It, it is something of a, uh, a soci- sociology of Midsummer and uh, Midsummer and and just. Uh, high control groups in general, uh, and, um, you know, relational abuses in general, sort of, uh, there, there is a banality of abuse going on in this film that I think is really interesting. And, uh, I think we'll probably talk about that more just in a little bit. Yes, I think we will. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Okay. Arthur, what does your class look like, uh, dealing with Midsummer? Yeah, I, I really wanted to kind of focus in on that grief and horror thing. Uh, and I'm kind of seeing this maybe as another segment in a horror film, horror class, horror studies in cinema or something like that. Uh, and, and kind of just, I think, um, diving a bit off of my syllabus for last week's uh, Children of the Corn uh, episode, uh, where we talked about the the family unit in, in horror, because I think these kind of go a bit hand in hand in some some regards. Um, I think a lot of time horror, uh, grief and horror is, you know, usually some sort of, uh, onslaught against the, the, the familiar unit in some ways, uh, and whether that's generational or, or in the immediate family. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a natural starting point to move into grief and horror. 
Uh, and I want to start, and uh, I, I meant to shout this out when we initially recorded this, but I, I forgot, but I, I got it this time. Uh, so there's a little article uh, over on rogerdebert.com. A uh, little, I shouldn't uh, downplay it. It's a nice little essay um, called The Pain Needs to Mean Something on Horror and Grief by Scout Tafoya, um, uh, wherein he uh, outlines uh, a, a personal uh, tragedy close to to him uh, amongst his friend group and how dealing with horror film uh, provides can provide that catharsis while also you know creating that space for reflection and and uh, I, I think uh, inner internalizing some of that and and being able to work through certain things and just putting things into certain perspectives. Uh, so I, I think that's an essay where we would start because that that very personal testimony I think is uh, key in some of this and pulling out some themes and pulling out some uh, different talking points. Uh, from there, I want to start. Uh, I've got a lot of Stephen King here at the beginning. I, I think this is a big uh, kind of motif for King uh, is familial tragedy, uh, generational tragedies, generational curse type things, uh, sins of the father. Uh, and so I would start with the shining slash Dr. Sleep. Um, I think, you know, I think in Kubrick's film and probably Flanagan's film as well, that, that pairing, um, just because of that generational trauma that occurs that the, the familial tragedy that takes place in the shining and what that breeds in Danny Torrance and that grief that takes place and takes hold in him as he tries to, somehow move forward past that and the way that intergenerational dynamic is still there. And he still wrestles with that, that fallout of those events uh, from the shining and what that's meant for him. Uh, from there, uh, I, I want to get maybe into parental grief uh, and, and the initial uh, immediate familial unit tragedy. And I want to talk about pet cemetery again from Stephen King. I want to talk about the book. I think that book is at a very dark point in his career and his life. Uh, and it's kind of in the peak moment of his nihilist uh, approach, I think, in storytelling uh, set alongside stuff like, uh, you know, Cujo and, and even I think Children of the Corn has some of this as well. Uh, but these he's really got kind of a dark period that he goes through here in his writing. Um, and some of that's because of, you know, contractual stuff, but also I think some personal stuff. Uh, so I, I want to look at Pet Cemetery and partnered that with Pumpkinhead because very similar uh, thematic threads of fathers doing the unspeakable to avenge their, you know, or, 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 or to not necessarily avenge, but to somehow make right the tragedy that has befell them. Uh, whether that is Pet Cemetery, you know, trying to return, you know, what is dead and in a Pumpkinhead avenging death. Uh, I, I think those two are interesting dynamics in the way they play out and the way those fathers are portrayed. Uh, beyond that, I want to look at Scream from 96. Uh, I, I think that Scream's place uh, as a satire is important, but I think it's also a movie that deals with grief. And, and I think it deals with teens who are in grief and in depression and really working through trauma and tragedy in a small community. And, you know, this is really interesting because it, it you know, what predates Columbine, right? A couple of years. I can't remember Columbine's when. Uh, like four 90, years. Yeah, 99, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I think in that way, it's, you know, a fascinating kind of foreshadow of, of what's to come. 
Um, but also it feels somewhat as the natural ending point for a, a thread that was started with Halloween, which it riffs on uh, quite a bit. But, uh, you know, Halloween lands in that kind of peak serial killer period in time when when suburbs and, you know, houses across the country were being uh, uh, terrorized by these different killers. Um, and so Halloween kind of speaks, I think, to those societal fears at the time in the community. But I think Scream is the, the natural progression and ending place for that, where those tragedies have had an impact through the generations, right? The, the, the fears, the fears of the parents are now coming back within the community. And we see some of this, I think with uh, nightmare as well, but I think in scream it particularly seeing teens deal with grief and depression and, and not really understanding how to cope with that. Uh, I, I think are interesting uh, talking points there uh, beyond that. I want to go with the Babadook. And as Dalton mentioned, hereditary, I think if, if you talk midsummer in a, in a class in a horror class on, especially if you're talking about grief, you got to go with hereditary. I, I, I think they're two sides of the same coin in many regards. You know, one is light, one is dark, uh, yet they both deal with very similar subject matter. And and Midsommar, in many ways, is a natural progression of what where Hereditary ends. And so I I think that alone uh, is a fascinating place to look and see how that plays, but also how the grief is handled in both, both instances and, and the, the kind of driving points of those two characters of Tony Collette and uh, Florence Pugh uh, and how they kind of parallel and where they cross and where they, you know, uh, dissect and, and things of that nature. Um, so that's where I would take this course. I think uh, is through a study of how grief is portrayed in, in horror film. Excellent. Excellent. I think that's probably needful. And I, I find horror, as a genre to um, be of the sort of, you know, lowbrow genres to be the most open to dealing with um, those really particular kind of traumatic kind of issues. Um, Other, you know, most movies, you know, you don't, I mean, even if someone's got like some sort of trauma from being cheated on a romantic comedy, it's just, you know, because she's finally found someone hot enough, right. Yeah. That, uh, that she can get over it or whatever. And, uh, it, it, it's it's a it, the most authentic sort of explorations are there. I think in a lot of ways, drama does this as well. I think so. I don't want to just sort of. Well, I, just, I, say, I think even there's you know some war movie adjacent type things as well. I, mm-hmm. I think war falls in that, uh, but I think most war movies are also horror movies in their own right. Yeah, I, well, I think an argument could be made there for sure. So, well done, well done. I enjoy that very much. Uh, so, with my syllabus, uh, I am going down the old beaten sort of expected road here. Uh, within a horror class, uh, a film studies class, probably about the horror genre, and or maybe a film studies class that I w- might deal with like less beaten path kind of genres. And, uh, and that might be interesting to think about what, you know, genres you might use. Uh, for that, but um, I, the module that I would use Midsummer in, in either case, uh, would be a section on folk horror, and uh, I'm going to change it up a little bit from last time because I've been thinking about Midsummer staying in my head, and uh, there is a book out there uh, about folk horror by Adam Scovell. It's called Folk Horror: Colon Hours Dreadful and Things Strange, uh, Things Strange. 
and so I'm not sure about the publishing house. It doesn't seem to be an academic house or anything like that, but uh, it does seem to be the only remotely scholarly account of that genre that I found so far. And so um, I might begin with that book uh, as a basis. And in addition to that, I would add a film because one of the distinctions he apparently makes, and I haven't read the book, and uh, by the way, Professor Gordon, it is okay to assign on a syllabus books or movies you have not yet read or watched uh, uh, so that you get a chance to read them. <laughs> because Duly I, noted. I certainly do that a lot. Uh, if I've got a class coming around, I'm like, hey, you know what? I want to read that. I'll put it on the syllabus. Uh, so that I get a chance to, and I already automatically have a sounding board with which to ping pong ideas on. Uh, it works for me. Perfect. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so I would add to that uh, syllabus from, again, the lost episode uh, from last time. I would add to it uh, the film The Vavitch, which I mentioned, I think, by name uh, as a possibility. But I would go ahead and go with it because one of the arguments that Scoville makes, apparently, is there's a strong distinction between the gothic and the folk in horror. And I would have to read his book and see his definitions and see how they work for that to play out. But um, one of the assignments that I use in another class that I actually do teach is to uh, make a gothic literature argument about Eggers the Vivitch. And so I am pretty compelled that that movie is gothic. So I would just be curious to see where this particular writer might just be incorrect, um, which is an interesting way to sort of explore in a class. Uh, I think sometimes too often uh, instructors in a course will uh, use uh, text with which they agree only uh, rather than um, giving contrary sideways uh, against the grain kind of readings uh, here and there. And so Scoville for me is, already go, saying something that I am, I'm pretty sympathetic to the uh, inverse of his uh, claim. So I'd be curious to see how that all worked out. So uh, Eggers, the Vavitch uh, would work there, but of course if it's a full core class. You're going to have to do the 1973, the wicker man, uh, not the Nick cage one. I understand there are bees in that one. Um, oh, bees are to be had, but I actually think that might just be from uh, a, an extended cut from a uh, delete scene from the extended cut. Maybe Uh I have to be truthful and say I've only seen bits and pieces of both versions of The Wicker Man, unfortunately. I really, really enjoy uh, the first Wicker Man. And it does, uh, in some ways, make that stronger contrast between Christendom and paganism uh, there on uh, this sort of lonely aisle that this uh, Scottish Presbyterian policeman goes to investigate a missing person. And so I, I find that to be a really interesting and uh, fascinating story. And keeping with all things Druidic and European, uh, the other film I would use there is uh, The Lair of the White Worm, directed by Ken Russell. It's based on the Bram Stoker novel, which is actually a quite good novel. Uh, I reviewed it on the Borgo cast back when I was doing those shows. I might still do them someday, but as of right now, I'm just not. Um, but it's all still there, and it still lives, and who knows. But uh, the film version of it uh, stars, and I don't think I mentioned this last time, Hugh Grant. Baby Hugh Grant. I'm sorry, what? You spent all this time talking about this damn worm movie, and you didn't mention it's got an early Hugh Grant performance? I, I did fail to mention that. Um, here here, I got all excited about thinking it was a Dune-type thing last week, and, and now I'm learning it's a, it's a Hugh Grant movie. Does he uh, hang out with Paddington? Does he sweep a woman off their feet? What's going on? Well, what happens is he investigates. There's an archaeologist who finds an old skull, and uh, there's some buried ruins out in uh, somewhere in Wales, and there's a, a giant dragon 
that's still out there, and a death cult that worships the serpent. Uh, W-Y-R-M. Yes. And so uh, it, it, it's a much more fantastical sort of exploration there. You know, the, the horror in Midsommar and in The Wicker Man um, are not supernatural. Uh, there are theological sort of supernatural sort of connectivities that these people have in terms of their uh, theological, cosmological systems, whatever they happen to be. But um, the the non-material does not make an appearance in any way, or at least the outside of regular experience. And Lair of the White Worm, uh, Lair of the White Worm does touch on that. And it's Ken Russell. Ken Russell is a brilliant filmmaker uh, of the 1980s, of that really sort of... Uh, Almost, I mean, he's not a No Wave film director like Jim Jarmusch, but I, I think about No Wave a lot when I watch him. Um, there's something really, really punk 80s, but British, rather than punk 80s in New York, about what he does uh, in his aesthetic. And uh, Larry the White Worm kind of falls into that and makes it a really interesting watch anyway, and so I think students would, would enjoy that. Uh, moving back to this side of the pond, though, and American folk horror again, uh, I, I think looking at uh, Rob Zombie's The Lords of Salem, which we've done a review upon, or not a review, an analysis of uh, for this show in the past, which is dealing with these people out in the woods, these pagans, these others, but they have been um, uh, ostracized. And of course, you know, the, the disaster of Salem. And let me just say it again. Uh, I said it last time, but I say it, I don't know, every other year at school when I teach Gothic literature. There were no witches at Salem. There were no witches. None of those people were witches. There was no witchcraft being practiced. That was a massacre of people. I mean, obviously, you shouldn't be massacring and executing witches anyway, but that was the reason why, and they weren't even, you know, quote-unquote guilty of that. So just throwing that out there, none of those people. It was political, that sociological. Anyhow, um, but Lords of Salem is like this uh, revenge story. Uh, uh, against uh, those who are descendant of uh, the judges uh, there at uh, at Salem, and it's got a lot of a uh, lot of um, connectivity with uh, the Nathaniel Hawthorne short story *Young Goodman Brown*, and uh, so that might be a short story I might add to the mix as well, just for kicks and grins. It's turning into a long module, it's turning into a, like a graduate degree seminar class rather than a uh, undergraduate college course, but. Those would be the things I would want to use in maybe a, a few week module for undergrads as opposed to a week or two uh, module uh, for uh, graduate students uh, regarding folk horror, which is apparently more of a thing than I even realized. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. And now comes that great moment where we get down to business. Now, Dustin, you have a tendency to put Arthur on the spot of late to explain what expanding the syllabus is. So I'm going to put some shoes on some other feet and ask you to explain to the fine folks at home uh, what's going to happen now, now that business time has started. So what we're doing right now is analysis. And what that means is we're going to apply the various frameworks uh, and sociological, uh, theological, philosophical, and aesthetic questions uh, that have been raised over the years in cinema studies and apply it to this film, which, of course, is going to be a film that's going to be analyzed ad nauseum. We're sort of loosey-goosey on our uh, films you don't normally find in a film studies course uh, tagline uh, here with Midsommar. But we're going to explore that and uh, explore whatever questions 
uh, this particular film would raise and how one might approach that. I don't remember in the Lost episode that we did name drop any particular theories of cinema studies, but we definitely touched in the realms of sociology and politics and religion uh, quite a lot. And those are also avenues of analyses uh, that can happen in terms of content analysis rather than form analysis uh, dealing with a film. And so that's what's about to go down. But I want to ask a brand new question from uh, different than uh, what we talked about last time, because you said something that, that, that you were saying something along these lines before Dalton, but it kind of began to spark a thought. Uh, and I think maybe I even made it a brief allusion to this, but we were talking about just the definition, the taxonomy of this word cult, uh, which I don't think we've actually addressed uh, a few films into this marathon at this point. What exactly qualifies a cult? Because you mentioned one thing, the sort of newness of religion, uh, theological uh, heresy or cultism in that sense. and uh, But there's also a sociological aspect uh, to that which is a cult. And uh, I, I think that's, that's a good way to think about it because uh, sometimes cult is simply used as a, a smear word Mm, totally. Or, you know, uh, to, to say this is new, this is bad, or this is rather heretical. And in some senses, anything uh, that happens in the development of religion over time is at some point uh, a heresy, at some point a cult uh, version of that. So one way in which we could think about this is that Buddhism is a, is a Hindu heresy, right? And uh, therefore, in some ways, uh, cult, uh, a cultic outgrowth out of Hinduism, though it has developed over time and become its own new thing. Christianity, in some senses, is uh, a cultic development uh, within uh, rabbinic Judaism uh, from the Second Temple period uh, would be one way to think about that. But both of those religions, of course, have got enough miles on them. No one considers them to be cults, um, rather. Mm, and sure. So, and, 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 you know, I mean, you, you know, the same sort of word could be thrown there within the Christian tradition. So, um if you're not theologically orthodox on important questions, so maybe a Jehovah's Witness is considered to be cultic uh, in that sense, though I don't think they're sociologically a cult, um, or uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormons. Are. Well, even, right, I mean, this goes all the way back to the foundation of, of that particular doctrine, right? Because if you look at, you know, I mean, Gnostic Christianity became very early uh, in the, the Christian uh, uh religions, uh, you know, formation, mm -hmm. that, that becomes a heresy very quickly. Right. right. Uh, and, and I think uh, to kind of just jump in, since you were kind of trying to tee me up there a little bit, I, I think it's worth noting, and I, I was, I didn't really do this at all uh, in our last episode, and maybe it was this, uh, this failing on my part that cursed our very, very good audio uh, <laughs> to the, to the trash bin. Um, it, I think the distinction is important because it's really not a, a word used uh, in academic study anymore because it's such a loaded, typically pejorative term, right? right? Which is why I think it's useful to say new religious movement or a high control group, uh, because those are usually the two things being talked about when people say cult. They're either saying this is new and weird, uh, or this is an abusive group that expects a certain amount of blood in, blood out uh, commitment. Uh, from its members. Thank right, you for uh, that. Yeah, that term high control group is good because uh, what I've heard or read in some of the theological writing is there's just theological cultism and then there is something like sociological cultism. And so I, I heard an argument made about a particularly orthodox uh, Christian Protestant denomination that was so exclusive in its requirements 
uh, as to who is in and out as far as heaven and hell, as to who's really part of the people and what the exclusive rules of participating in the people. I'm not going to name drop this group because uh, I, I don't, I don't want it. I, I just don't want to, um, but that, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You don't want to, you know, speak out of school. I got you. Yeah. And, and so um, the, this particular author made an argument that they were a sociological cult, even though their theological beliefs are all within the pale of sort of standard Christian orthodoxy. And uh, that was a really kind of freeing moment for me to say, oh, so that's what, and of course, those particular um, uh, communal kind of strictures. And uh, I, there is some theology at work here, I guess, because you are talking about who makes it and who doesn't make it after death, right? Which seems to be a big deal for many versions of evangelical Christianity. Um, that being the case, um, it, it does behave in a high control kind of sense, right? And so uh, if somebody's really into, say, Wicca, for instance, Wicca, uh, or uh, for this matter, the, the the pagan practices of the Wicker Man or of Midsummer, they really don't fall within that kind of cultic frame because it's, it's very old stuff that they're doing, right? And if you go to, oh gosh, you know, um, your local witchcraft bookstore, um, as one does, I love to look at tarot cards, guys. I don't play tarot and I don't, you know, I'm not into that, but I love the artwork and tarot cards. I'm obsessed. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. And so I often go to your sort of crystal shop type places uh, and just look at the various tarot card decks. Um, Dave McKeon, one of my favorite artists, has a set out not very long ago, and it's it's gorgeous. But anyway, um, my point is, though, that uh, those people who practice those tip of, those types of religion oftentimes are very disorganized. There's almost there's very little sort of communal connectivity, and even when there is some sort of communal connectivity, it is uh, extraordinarily low control. And so, in that sense, it wouldn't fall at all in our sort of cultic definitions here. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I think I get what, get what you're saying. And so we've got we've we've uh, as you were saying, we just got to be really careful with this. We're talking about you know sort of personal individual autonomy kind of control, which I think does apply to the Hogar uh, or the Hothgar, whatever the Hothgar is. Uh, I, I did have to double check. It, it, it is uh, the um, David Lee Rothgar. It's it's the Horga. Uh, I, I had written it down uh, in my notes and could not find it earlier. Hrothgar, son of Beowulf, son of <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so they they're they're putting a lot of control on their people, you know, which is pretty clearly there. And so that it's not theologically or in the sense um, religiously a heresy because it's you know it's not an offshoot of anything, right? Yeah. So I th- this wasn't uh, being thrown around back when I was in school, uh, but I, I is my understanding. I also didn't get too too deep into the sociology of religion, but I, I guess a, a classification that gets used uh, these days is a uh, the um, the sect church continuum, mm. um, and, and kind of looking at the kind of delineating between a denom- a church to a denomination to a sect. Um, so I guess you know a certain amount of how institutionalized beliefs are and, and how widely uh, um, ad- adopted certain practices are, right? I, I think these are all relevant things to talk about, to look at w- when we start talking about this. I also think it's important to um, th- yeah, think about what a group expects from you, right? 
Uh, if a group expects you to jump off of a cliff when you turn 72, I think it's pretty safe to say that that's a high control group. <laughs> Correct. Uh, if a group expects you to uh, give of yourself to your community, um, you know, in whatever way is feasible for you and your family, I don't really think that that qualifies as a cult. Uh, unless if giving of yourself to your community means giving all of your money to uh, to Sunglasses Daddy, uh, which is what we'll call this fictional uh, new religious movement leader I've created. Um, th- that's probably a cult. That's probably a high control group, and you might not want to be hanging out with Sunglasses Daddy, you know? Yeah, and I'll go ahead and make a further state or a further step forward in that same vein. So, for instance, to require young men um, uh, between ages 18 and 22 as practitioners of your faith to take a two-year uh, tour of the world and uh, to proselytize for your faith, that's not high control uh, to expect that kind of service. Um, it would be high control if uh, somebody sat down and said, now here's your job, right? And not or, or it would be high control to say, hey, I, I know, I've noticed you, you two's daughter has entered a certain age. I think she should come live in my house now. Right. Uh, th- this is the fine dividing line, right, between uh, what one sect uh, versus another sect of a, a particular religious movement chooses to, to do. Or maybe in an earlier version of that same religion, um, and this is represented in, in one of Sherlock Holmes' uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, where a person's required to marry within the faith or be ostracized and you know those kinds of things. And uh, there's a economic and social pressure placed upon to sort of make these decisions uh, for this father uh, picking a, a spouse for his daughter. Well, and I think right there, Dustin, you're you're getting into where this shit gets really fuzzy, right? Right, because the, now we're talking about what are the the social mores, uh, the, the social expectations of a certain group, right? The horga expect you to go out into the world and come back uh, at some point, hopefully with some new friends uh, to either murder or breed with. Um, it's also worth mentioning here that uh, Ari Aster has been very upfront that the, the Horgas beliefs are not really based on I- anything that exists in actuality. Right. Right. He, he took inspiration from, from real um, pagan traditions. He took inspiration from some spiritual movements, uh, but he also, and he took inspiration from some real cults and high control groups. Uh, but, you know, he, he also just uh, created a, a spooky community for our, our heroes to get lost within. Uh, and I, I think that's, you know, this is a work of fiction at the end of the day. And I, I think that differentiation is important. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, all right. So let's, okay. So that was my new question that came to my mind. Now I'm trying to remember my old questions. Um, if one of you remembers one of them before I get through vamping here, go ahead and jump in with it. Uh, uh, I just kind of want to talk about some form stuff real quick. Yes, let's um, do it. So, uh, I, this film is so effective at disorienting you, um, and that's before the you know the the shrooms show up. Uh, you know, b- between sort of this very um, I don't I don't even know what adjective to use. Uh, let's go ahead and say um, bombastic, um, uh, religious, religious even. Uh, oh, you know, we have this tableau laid out before us that kind of uses the seasons to describe the arc of the film right at the top of the movie. Uh, and then we get go from, uh, you know, some disheartening phone calls between Christian uh, and Danny to a, a literal house of horrors, right? In, in this, you know, this opening uh, scene of catastrophe and tragedy uh, that sort of kicks the uh, the emotional events of the movie off. Um, and, and from that moment, Danny as a character is unmoored. 
from space and time. And, and the film does a really good job of putting us in her headspace. I think, you know, of course, of uh, the grass growing out of her hands after she, you know, she takes the the, the drugs uh, with the Horga. But even before that, right, the, there's this amazing transition uh, where Danny gets very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, they're, they're planning this trip to Sweden and Pele, you know, is the first person to bother to mention, oh, hey, uh, we're all just kind of standing here with uh, our, our tongues in our hands. I'm sorry your whole family just died. Uh, and uh, Danny is not ready for that kind of conversation with these right. dudes that she doesn't like that much. Uh, and, and so we immediately get this incredible transition from her trying to go to the bathroom to get some alone time to entering the bathroom of this apartment. And it becomes the bathroom of the airplane on the way to Sweden, uh, despite moments before us here in Christian assure his friends don't worry i've invited danny but she's not coming um and so we, we continue to just stay unmoored within danny's perspective which does a lot to kind of describe the sort of emotional turmoil people finds them find themselves in when they are uh, become the targets of high control groups right because the general goal of, of of such a group is to maintain a following right this is why you uh, exert a high level of control on your followers is to ensure uh, the perpetuation of your group. Um, and again, this is, of course, where things get fuzzy, right? Because this is what religions want to a certain extent. Uh, now, they they're, uh, have uh, altruistic motives a lot of the time, right? Either bettering their community or passing on a, you know, a way of uh, life and spiritual balance, life balance and spiritual balance onto, you know, the next generation, all of, all of these things. Um, but also, <laughs> groups look to people who are uh, experiencing something difficult, uh, something deeply upsetting, uh, and try to manipulate them, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, Christian is manipulating Danny this entire time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what the, the Horga are offering her is better. Uh, it's definitely more emotionally supportive, you know, and it definitely validates what she's going through. Uh, and th- that's great. Right. That I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that uh, if somebody is saying, do you feel held by your boyfriend uh, who has forgotten your birthday? That person might not have ulterior motives. They might just be trying to let you know that you are in a bad situation. But, you know, they might also want you to marry them and, and join their death cult. Yeah. It could I, go either way. And I think that is the sort of weird line there uh, within whatever this cultic, you know, high control thing is versus other secular and religious organizations uh, of which one can participate is that they do as a rule for the sake of, uh, you know, perpetuating their group, they do practice empathy and they do practice empathy. I think with intentionality that they, they make a point to, I need to hear what this person is saying and I need to help them feel what they're feeling and feel what they feel right alongside them uh, for their betterment. Right, and I and I do think that altruism is even there for for Pele because I think Pele thinks this is the best way to live life, you know. Uh, but the other side of it is what exactly is the fine print in this particular thing, right? That's oh, does it also involve you know murdering somebody at seventy two who fails to jump off the rock, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, and this is right. This is where we get to how like socially deviant or. Um, out of the realm of, uh, of normality is a group's beliefs or practices. Which really brings us to the question that we talked about a lot on the Lost episode, and I think it does need to be said again, the, the relativism of this uh, film. Because sure. a lot of it is that sort of anthropological objectivity that sort of initially begins to inform 
the way in which like these are different people. This is a different culture. They kill all their people. Well, they let their, all their people kill themselves at age 72. We house our people, our elderly, you know, in nursing homes. They would be just as scandalized by that as we are by this. And so we got to, you know, not judge or whatever uh, regarding that. Uh, and, and so, and, and there is something valid in that initial argument. Oh, sure. And yet, well, and, and still, and, right? And yet there's the question of, right, it's not a question of if the Horga uh, are, are, are Horga, yeah, Horga are racist, but how racist are they, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we definitely know they kind of are. Uh, and uh, in the director's cut, you know, uh, Josh uh, has a, a book that I, the title flashes by very quickly and I haven't had time to go back and look, uh, but it has a swastika on the cover and is, you know, talking about runes. Uh, and Danny's like, uh, what's that about? And Josh throws to Pele, uh, who uh, kind of like stumbles through an answer. Uh, again, just the text of the, the director's cut, you know, kind of making explicit this connection between, um, you know, national socialism and uh, the pagan history of Northern Europe, right? And, and the ways in which um, group histories can be manipulated, can be repurposed, repurposed and reappropriated uh, to, to whatever end you might have. Uh, yeah, whether absolutely. that's you know whether that is uh, maintaining a, a small community or you know uh, genocide and global domination, right? And, and so yeah, I, I think it does. You know, it doesn't give us an answer. Finally, it, it it leaves us with the complexity of we might need to make some value judgments. Uh, and uh, you talked about the razor of uh, Ernst Ernst Bloch. Is that the uh, philosopher Dalton? Oh, um, uh, Max Horror, Ka- Horror. no, you're talking about, uh, Karl Popper, uh, Karl right. Popper. And the, yeah, yeah. the uh, paradox of uh, tolerance. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and yeah. reiterate that if you don't mind, please. Uh, yeah, sure. So again, it, it, Popper just kind of comes down to the point, you know, it, it is sort of, uh, he, he basically says, uh, this idea that there is this tolerance of this paradox of tolerance, right. That if you are too tolerant, you will let in views that are exclusionary, um, that are intolerant and how do you deal uh, with intolerance when you were trying to uh, create a, you know, a pluralistic tolerant society. And Popper says, well, that's the time you be intolerant. <laughs> you have to stand somewhere. Uh, and if somebody says we want to kill everybody within X group, you have to say, not if we kill you first, dickhead. Um, and you know, it sucks that the world is a violent place sometimes, but the, these are the times where uh, the stakes of ideology become extremely high. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's it's interesting that, you know, there, there is a reading of this film that is um, only liberatory for Danny. Uh, and, and I don't I don't necessarily think that reading of the film is invalid, but I do think it it deliberately chooses to ignore some information the film gives us. Uh, and I think that this is a great breakup movie. And if you have ever been in a situation uh, that uh, involves gaslighting, that involves uh you know, passive manipulation. Uh, This is a movie that's going to offer you a lot of catharsis. And I think that's good. Uh, We we can't also just pretend that uh, Danny hasn't chosen to become the Nordic queen. Right. Right. (laughs) That, that, that is, uh, I mean, this is sort of the stuff that people get mad about when they talk about, uh, this is the sort of things people are getting caught under the collar about rather, uh, when they talk about, uh, you know, white feminism and, and all italics, right. This, uh, this idea that, um, you know, the, the, the oppression of uh, being a woman within a patriarchal society does not also remove the benefits of whiteness, right? Uh, and the, the, obviously, I am talking way out, out of my school, 
but you know, uh, feminism is dope. And so is intersectionality. And if you can't merge those two things together, then you don't really have a cohesive leg to stand on uh, as far as uh, your, your belief system goes. As a man, I agree. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we are men and we are dipshits. Uh, are the Horga matriarchal? That's a fun question to play around with. Maybe, maybe not. Probably more egalitarian than anything. But it, but it is interesting that gender is played with to some extent. I mean, you know, one of the first dudes uh, that our, our intrepid explorers meet, right, is like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm wearing a dress because of the hermaphroditic uh, qualities of nature. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. That sounds cool, right? Yeah. That, that, that's like a fun thing for somebody to say to you about their uh, their drug festival. Um, but, you know, hopefully nobody gets uh, put in a bear costume and set on fire at the end of said festival. Right, which is uh, the real problem there. Um, let's wrap this up by talking a little bit about uh, what this film is doing with the realm of mental health. Because, you know, as you mentioned, Dalton, you know, bipolar disorder is sort of name dropped as the uh, malady that uh, Florence Pugh's sister suffers. And yeah. then she goes on to murder her parents and uh, her and kill herself, commit suicide. Well, and and uh, you know, Danny uh, is prescribed Ativan. We see, uh, you know, definitely is ex- we don't get a diagnosis on her, but she definitely is experiencing panic attacks of some mm-hmm. kind. So she's probably got a you know panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, and she murders her ex boyfriend at yes. the end of the movie, right? Uh, and joins a death cult. Uh, yeah, I, I said this last time, and uh, or last time we tried to talk about uh, Midsommar, and I'll reiterate here. Um, I, I was listening to this podcast, Cows in the Field, and they had uh, Emily Vanderwolf from the AV Club on as a guest, uh, and she uh, she was quoting her wife, you know, talking about this this film with, with her spouse, and uh, her wife said that Ari Aster is uh, either the best filmmaker working today as far as addressing mental health, or the worst, and there's probably no in between. And I definitely agree with that assessment <laughs> because, uh, and again, this is not my, my original thought. This is, you know, what I'm, I'm reiterating something I heard, but I've definitely resonated with me. Uh, and that is uh, the kind of the end point of that thought, or I guess the, the negative side of that thought uh, was in Ari Aster's universe, uh, mental illness definitely seems to be uh, something that will inevitably lead to your death. And, uh, Boy, is that not a hopeful message uh, right. for people who are, you know, struggling. And uh, I think if ever there were a, uh, you know, 15 to 16 month period in which everybody was struggling with their mental health, I think we are currently in one, hopefully exiting it. But, uh, you know, with any luck, this uh, last year or so uh, will become a turning point, at least in, uh, you know, North American society where we uh, find the capacity to actually deal with uh, mental health in a way that, uh, doesn't segregate it off from people's health uh, as like some sort of secret optional health, right? Right. Um, I don't know. I, I I am troubled by it, and I don't think I'm going to get to an answer here, right? And this is kind of one of my my biggest bugbears with the film, um, outside of maybe uh, convincing people that uh, ethnogens are you know not a valid form of spiritual expression or something people will use to brainwash you because. That's just not how drugs work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't, you know, the CIA uh, showed through a not so rigorous study that you couldn't really brainwash somebody by feeding them uh, hallucinogens. Uh, you can make their memory not work super good and you can probably permanently damage their brain if you do it hard enough, but you can't, you know, turn them into a, a sleeper assassin. Yeah, the Manchurian uh, candidate thing is not going to work. Yeah. Sure, but you can break some down somebody's defenses. You can. Uh, lower their inhibitions and get them to participate in something they might not have otherwise participated in. Right. Uh, you know, uh, we, we didn't really get into today uh, Christian's uh, lack of consent in the sex act he takes part in or his, you know, 
earlier in the film showing some interest in having sex with a minor, right? Those are two things that happen in this film. And, uh, you know, you can hold both of those truths in your mind and Christian can be both a bad dude and also the victim of a terrible crime. Right. Right. Danny can also be both liberated uh, from this abusive relationship and also fall into the clutches of another uh, abusive dynamic. Um, And I, I think, I guess, if we're going to try to say something about mental health within the text of the movie, I guess it it is that uh, there will always be people who want to manipulate and take advantage of you uh, when you are um, experiencing uh, emotional uh, or mental turmoil, right? Whether it is a a shitty partner or a, uh, a group that wants to, you know, your DNA for whatever reason. Right. And I think that that's really where we need to land here with this is, uh, when one is struggling uh, in terms of mental health, you have to seek help and you have to listen to good advice because the odds of exploitation are exponentially higher uh, in that time. Uh, and so uh, Danny gets exploited by her boyfriend and also, you know, by this cult. And they, in fact, use her trauma and the angst that she's feeling at the hands of that abuse to perpetuate other violence and to further dominate control and exploit her. And uh, so if, you, if you're if you not feeling right, you know, if things are not just quite clicking, man, talk to somebody, get a therapist, uh, you know, and uh, take that advice um, and uh, surround yourself with people who are invested in you for your sake and not with any ulterior motives. Yeah. And if, uh, you know, you see a ritual suicide and you try to tell your friends, this seems bad, we should get out of here. And they say no. Bad friends. Bad friends. Move on. Which I think is, Which you know, is what makes Danny so interesting as a central character is she's the first one to recognize the danger uh, and yet becomes the danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and very much in the Walter White sense uh, a little bit. Yeah, she definitely is the danger by the end of the film. Which, uh, you know, speaking of taking us on home, uh, closes, let's, let's uh, metaphorically close out on a, a fadeaway shot of uh, Florence Pugh smiling uh, inscrutably. Right. Yeah, I mean, as far as what it means, I have no idea. But I, I think she is um, down with the sickness. Would well, yeah, sure. and uh, I agree. I don't know what it means, and I don't know what this episode means, because uh, maybe this one will get lost, too, and we'll just have to agree that we never talked about Midsommar on this podcast. It never, ever happened. So with that, let's go ahead and render a verdict, then. Shelf or trash? What do we do with Midsommar? Uh, I'm going to pitch to you first, Arthur. What do you got to say, buddy? Uh, I, I think I'll reluctantly put it on the shelf. Oh, we brought him across. Look at there. All right. I'm glad to hear that. Well, what do you got to say, Dalton? Well, yeah, as I alluded to, I, uh, I, I done gave A24 my dollars and uh, asked them to send me their beautifully packaged director's cut. So I, I did, in fact, put it on the shelf. It is uh, maybe one of the only times I've done that uh, since we've been recording this show. I can't think of very many movies I uh, I bought Uh since we've done this show, I don't really buy a lot of physical media. Um, yeah, I like this movie a lot. Uh, that also doesn't mean I'm going to recommend it, right? And Dustin, you've already alluded to this. This is not a movie for everybody, and I, I, I cannot stress that enough. And not just from like the the emotional health uh, framework that we were talking about. I just mean like some people are going to find this movie boring. They're going to find it overly indulgent. They're going to find it silly. Um, and those are all valid reads of this movie because I think it's extremely funny. Uh, we didn't talk very much this time, uh, but last time we talked a lot about the, sort of the low key comedy going on in this. 
and and those sort of tonal shifts are not going to land for everybody. So I love this movie. I think it's worth owning and checking out. Um, but that doesn't mean it's for everybody. Uh, if this conversation has interested you and you've somehow, uh, you know, if you listen to movie podcasts and haven't caught up with Mid- Midsommar yet, you'll probably think about it. Um, but yeah, as Dustin has said, you know, buyer beware. Uh, th- this is a, a movie that's going to ask a lot of you and is going to ask you to think about your life, think about your relationships and your family, uh, and uh, make and maybe even your uh, your religious background and, and ask you to ask some hard questions of yourself. So uh, it's not always a fun or easy or even feasible thing to do. Uh, Dustin, what about you? I'm also going to say Shelf. I think it is a masterpiece. I think it's a really, really well-made film. I think it's really, really interesting. I think it's very compelling. I think I absolutely should not have watched it uh, after my niece, who had bipolar disorder, had just died uh, when I saw it in theaters, uh, and I was not ready. But that being said, uh, hanging on to the film uh, and coming back to it is worthwhile. And so I do find it to be cathartic. I do find it to be useful. I do find it to be terribly troubling. Uh, but that's uh, the complexity is part of what I like about it. And uh, to wrestle with it accordingly, I think, is a lot of the fun to be had. So I, I recommend it pretty highly. And I still say shelf. So there you go, dear listener. That's our thoughts on Midsummer. Dalton, tell them how they can share their thoughts with us. I would love to do that, Dustin. Yeah, if you've got a uh, a real long treatise uh, on the uh, sort of interesting racial subtext of this movie or the gender subtext, uh, or I don't know, maybe you want to talk about playing Skin the Fool and what that means, uh, you can send all of those uh, long, winding thoughts to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to hear what you have to say. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Good Trash Media. Uh, that's the source uh, for not only you know this show as we're we're posting new episodes. We always make sure to post them over there. Uh, but it's also where you can find uh, you know more shows affiliated with us, like uh, the Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade, which is on a bit of a break right now. But there's a pretty solid back catalog for you to go check out. Uh, you can also check out the Praise Down with Heath and Alex, uh, which is a show that is just uh, ever evolving and, and ever. Uh, more interesting to me. Um, if you like uh, what we do over here, but you want to see it applied to music, um, and, and more ex- uh, specifically, if you want to, you know, if you've enjoyed sort of our, our theological discourse today, uh, that's really what they get into a lot over on the Praise Down. Uh, a lot of folks coming to coming onto the show to talk about their religious upbringings, both uh, traumatic and supportive, uh, and uh, yeah, it's a great show. Um, I guess last but not least, if you want more of my dumb voice or the voices of uh, people from uh, uh, that have appeared on this show, uh, you should go check out Hello Out There. Uh, it's a post-apocalypse improv comedy road trip podcast uh, hosted by the very funny uh, Lindy Mackey um, and her host, co-host Taylor, whose last name I can't remember right now. So sorry, Taylor. But I was just on it recently. Uh, and uh, Strangely enough, not knowing we were going to be doing a cult marathon, I don't think, our very good friend Kirsten Thurkelson, uh, who's uh, written for our website, goodtrashmedia.com, and appeared on the show many times, uh, was recently uh, also on that show as uh, the sole survivor of a death cult, uh, which was a very funny character to hear her play, but also weirdly ties into our marathon that we're doing right now. Uh, so again, that podcast is Hello Out There, uh, I was on recently. I played, uh, you know, a, a dude who uh, set up a survivalist of some sort who had set up shop in a drive uh, drive-in theater uh, because all characters are autobiographical in some way. Uh, that's social media. Uh, you know, I guess patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want to give us some money uh, and if you want to get some fun rewards from us. Uh, oh, rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, you know, podcast stuff. Um, 
that's it for a social media segment. Arthur, it is now the time for you to tell everyone what their homework is between now and next episode. Yeah, next week we're watching Karen Kasama's The Invitation on Netflix. Ooh-wee! Exciting times. I'm very, very pumped to talk about that movie. So there you go, dear listener. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.